I'm Enrique Cerna, and welcome to Conversations. Michael Eric Dyson is a scholar, a professor of sociology at Georgetown University. He's an ordained Baptist minister and a prolific writer. He's authored 19 books. The latest, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. The preacher comes on strongly in his searing sermon as he calls on white Americans to step up and take action in fighting racism. We talked on his recent visit to Seattle, where he shared some of his sermon as he read from a section in his book. This is from uh, the first part of the sermon and called Inventing Whiteness. Beloved, let me start by telling you an ugly secret. There is no such thing as white people. And yet so many of them, so many of you exist. Please hear me out. I know you're flesh and blood. I know that you use language and forks and knives. I'm not talking about your bodies or your garages or your grocery stores. I'm talking about the politics of whiteness. I'm talking about an identity that exists apart from the skin you're born in. I'm talking about a meaning of race that supersedes the features you inherit when you come out of the womb. You don't get whiteness from your genes. It is a social inheritance that is passed on to you as a member of a particular group. And it's killing us. And as quiet as it's kept, it's killing you too. Race has no meaning outside of the cultures we live in and the worlds we fashion out of its force and energy. Whiteness is an advantage and privilege because you have made it so, not because the universe demands it. So I want to tell you right off the bat that whiteness is made up and that white history disguised as American history is a fantasy, as much a fantasy as white superiority and white purity. Those are all myths. They're intellectual rubbish, cultural garbage. The quicker you accept that, the better off you'll be, and so will the rest of us. A sermon. You wrote this as a sermon, and obviously it comes through right there. Mm -hmm. That approach in writing this, mm -hmm. why? Well, you know, I've written, as you said, you know, 19 other books uh, and edited another one. And I've done cultural criticism, I've done sociological analysis, I've done religious and theological and ethical reflection, but I wanted this to come out of my heart. I wanted it to be more personal, I wanted it to be more existential, to reach out to the souls of the people I was talking to. And since I've been an ordained minister for over 35 years, I said, let me wear that hat. Let me, as a minister, reach out to the congregation of American democracy and appeal to their consciences, uh, talk to people beyond the bullhorn, and to, if you will, burrow down into the bully pulpit and say things that are on my heart, that are on my mind, that need to be said, that ought to be said, and not said in nastiness and viciousness, but in compassion, but in love, but a tougher love than maybe ordinarily associated with speaking to white brothers and sisters about race. I said raw, I said mm -hmm. challenging, yeah. I see intensity there. Mm -hmm. What do you want white America to do? Well, think about it, reflect on it, take what I'm saying seriously. Um, we've had other approaches. We had eight years of the Obama administration where President Obama, for good reason and for understandable reason, did not reach out to challenge white America. He challenged black people. He challenged other constituencies, but he did not, as a constituency, challenge white people. A, he wanted to get reelected. B, uh, his own philosophical approach to race uh, led down a different path. And so I think at points he drew equivalencies that to me were suspect or false. For instance, in his farewell speech, he's speaking to oppressed people, 
And then he says, but don't forget that white guy who from the outside looks like he has advantages but doesn't. That's fine, but that's interesting. The supposed revolution of white a working America had just won an election with the uh, placement of Donald Trump into the Oval Office. Wouldn't that be the time to say, hey, even though you guys have won, pay attention to those who got left behind. Um, he did would, to some extent, though, in his farewell speech. But not you know, in that he, well, What would he acknowledge that you know that the, today racism is is divisive? And that's is easy. Explosive as that's that's that's, that's that's like saying we're breathing. We know racism is explosive and divisive. But what we don't know is the fact that that's like the the the, the parallel I was drawing is like saying to women, yes. You are victims of racism, you are victims of misogyny, and you are victims of sexism. But hey, don't forget those patriarchs out there have to make a living as well, so be a bit kind to them. Nah, that's not really the point. The point is, how can we challenge, in love, uh, white brothers and sisters to take a closer look? The things that you write in mm -hmm. this, if, if I was white, mm -hmm. I could take them and be very offended. Mm. Is that something that you were trying to do? Mm. Or trying to say, listen, wake up, we have these issues, you are part of the problem as well. Right, well I'm sure you're saying that because you know that's something that some white people would say. You could also imagine many other white people of moral maturity saying, you know what, the man is saying something with respect and elegance and grace and dignity and he's trying to challenge us and we should listen. I think there are many more white people like that than those uh, who may be offended. Um, if I'm calling you beloved and I'm reaching out to you and I'm doing, you know, doing so in love, I'm not doing so with nastiness and viciousness, I, I don't think uh, there's a legitimate gripe to be made about what I might say. Now, there may be disagreement, um, and I understand that. But my intent and purpose is to encourage white brothers and sisters to think seriously, to get beneath the privilege of not hearing, of not hearing what they do not want to hear. Because one of the great privileges of whiteness is to turn you off or to leave the room or to move on because what you say will not ultimately impact or affect them in, in, in significant fashion. So I'm asking white brothers and sisters to go the extra mile, to open up their hearts, to think more seriously and be more introspective about some serious issues and this issue of race is one of the most serious. We are so divided right now. Mm -hmm. How can we try to shrink that division, find some middle ground, find some reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on what you think you want to reconcile to. If the point is reconciliation for reconciliation's sake, what does that give you? If the point is to tell the truth about what you feel and believe and therefore find some common resonance, that's different. But if people are subordinating the issue of justice to reconciliation, what are you reconciling yourself to? That which is unjust. James Baldwin said, do you want to integrate into a burning house? Integration is great, but not into a burning house. Let's put the fire out first and then integrate into that house. So let's get the house of race straight first, uh, set first, uh, off of fire first, and then talk about integrating into that. So for instance, with the Trump presidency, I, I think many people have aptly warned us to be careful about too quickly reconciling ourselves uh, to a normal state of affairs in the, in the Trump presidency. Xenophobia, racism, predatory behavior uh, against women, uh, things that have been suggested. And now the turnoff against uh, progressive ideas and the embrace of people across the spectra of an axes of race, class, culture, gender, sexual orientation and the like. So I don't want to reconcile myself to that. 
I want to challenge that. I want to say we can be better Americans than that and then create a greater possibility of hopeful and democratic exchange between citizens and reconcile ourselves to that. Have you met Donald Trump? I have. What was that like? Well, I was coming out of, um, I was downstairs in 30, uh, 30 Rockefeller uh, place and uh, uh, the elevators open up and a voice goes, you, you, you've been hard on me. You've been tough on me, but I love you. And if I had your pipes and brains, I'd be president now. <laughs> That's about a year and a half or more so ago. And uh, bless his heart, I'm a Christian man. So we had a conversation back and forth. He wanted to take a picture. I said, okay, we'll take a picture. Uh, not one that has been since published. And then, um, you know, he took me up and down the line and said, this is Michael Eric Dyson, one of the most famous intellectuals and greatest thinkers and so on. Very charismatic man. Donald Trump as an individual is a remarkably charismatic figure who makes an impression. impression. But I'm not concerned about his individual impression and the extraordinary charisma he bears. I'm worried about the consequences of his behavior in office and the public policies to which his rhetoric gives rise and the kind of passions that are unleashed in the wake of what he has said. The rise of the, of the right wing, the rise of the racist right wing, the rise of figures like Steve Bannon into the West Wing, an avowed uh, right wing you know, figure with racist uh, inferences and implications in both his rhetoric and in uh, the things that he's published. Um, and Jeff Sessions, a racially questionable figure who is now perhaps most likely to be head of the Justice Department. These are the kinds of things that must be addressed and resisted, not reconciled to, but challenged in order to reach for something deeper and more transcendent, true democracy in America. If you were to be able to talk to Donald Trump and say, Here's this portion of my book that I would like you to read in my sermon. Right. What would you What would you like him to read? What would you like him to, to take note of? Let me see. It's uh, 228 pages, one through 228. <laughs> uh, the part's about him. I'd say, look, I know how this goes. Look yourself up in the book and then read the part about you. Um, I'd want him to talk to read the part about white innocence. You know, the investment in a kind of white innocence, an immaturity, a, an unwillingness to grow up. Because with Donald Trump, I think we see the first toddler presidency. This is, this is baby bottles and infamil and poop in diapers. This is, you know, tweeting at will. This is, you know, just spleen on social media. It's not even adolescent. And I'm, I would say, stop, sir. But Donald Trump is the face of white innocence out of control and white privilege without apology. And I think we need to acknowledge that. And I would say to him in rather strong terms, but not vicious, I'm a preacher. I would love him as a human being, I do. Um, and say to him, sir, think of the consequences of your rhetoric of what you might say, what you might do, the, the tone you might strike, and the difference that might make in the broader society for people who uh, are not very sophisticated or who are and still are bigoted uh, despite that. And so I would want to ask him to think about that. But the part in my book about white innocence and the five stages of white grief, uh, the horror, the pain, the agony that uh, collectively white brothers and sisters may experience in the face of uh, the request that they no longer live in what Gore Vidal called the United States of Amnesia, become a member of the kingdom of memory and, and claim of the legacy of true democracy, which is sometimes uncomfortable, but ultimately the most rewarding. And are you asking in white America to look at the history of this country 
in understanding how we have come to where we are, particularly in understanding uh, white privilege mm -hmm. and other issues like that. Oh yeah, I mean history is extremely important. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that American history has become white history. How can we disentangle them, disaggregate them? Um, and see that whiteness is a racial formation among the family of races. Um, it's not just ethnicity, I'm an Italian, I'm a Irish, I'm Polish, I'm Jewish. It's also whiteness. Whiteness is a political identity. It's not something you're born with. Neither is blackness or redness or yellowness for that matter. These racial identities that we inherit depend upon the society in which we live to give them meaning. We're not born genetically encoded with what it means to be black, white, red, yellow, or brown. That being the case, we've got to challenge the social constructions of these races. And that's a big term in the academy. It's, it's bandied about as jargon. The race is a social construct, and therefore it's not real. Well, tell the cab driver that while you, hey, hey, stop, stop. I, I'm a social construction, bruh. I'm just a projection of fantasy. That, zoom. Or if you say race is socially constructed, so is this building. But if it falls on you, it'll hurt you. So what I'm trying to say is that we're not born with a sense of what it means to be an American. Those are ideas that we inherit. Is a person born in India different than a person born in uh, Indiana, Indianapolis? You know, what gives them the internal sense of who they are? The society in which we live shapes their perception, their understanding. And I'm saying given that, we can challenge what whiteness has been and has become. And whiteness is hurting white brothers and sisters too because nobody is born white. That's something we inherit. We're not born black. That's something we inherit. We learn to become and to exist as. So I'm asking us to take the, the, the high road and the better meanings of our own racial and ethnic identities and begin to accentuate and highlight those. When someone reads this book mm -hmm. or hears you speak, right. what are you hoping they walk away with well, in understanding I, well, what I, you're trying to say? I hope what they hear is an impassioned person. I hope they hear an intelligent person. I hope they hear an eloquent guy who's trying to make his case. And I hope they hear somebody who's loving. You know, I'm not a nasty person. I'm not a vicious person. I'm self-deprecating. I tell jokes. Uh, I teach at the well-known African-American school called Georgetown. <laughs> and, um, you know, so most of my students are white students. And so I engage them. I teach them. I talk to them. I've taught at Brown. Uh, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina. I've taught at Columbia, DePaul, University of Pennsylvania, and now Georgetown. And, you know, I have taught for nearly the, you know, more than the last quarter of a century, young white students who are eager, intelligent, willing to be introspective, trying to challenge some of the norms that they've inherited. Even if they defend them, they want to do so intelligently. And I'm trying to hash it out with them, talk with them, engage with them, teach them and learn from them. And I think when we do that, my classroom is an example and a metaphor for what I want to do with the broader society through this sermon. Can we bridge the divide? Oh, of course. I think that we're capable as human beings. If we have the desire, if we have um, the real the burning, um, you know, if you will, desire to change things as they are, um, I think we're capable of bridging those gulfs, those gaps, those bridges and then making us uh, a better people in the process. Michael Eric Dyson, we appreciate you taking the time to come by here and speak to us and uh, sermonize. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. All right. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.